welcome all of you. Well, let's stand together one more time and let's read our text together. We've been working through the letter of 1 Timothy and now we've come to 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 25. And this morning we'll look at part 3 together. Let's read the text. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidences of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear." In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're working through this letter that you inspired through the pen of the Apostle Paul, and we want to get everything from it that you would have us to. We want your words to shape the life of our church. We want to be speaking the truth in love to one another so that we can grow up into the image of Christ. Father, you have called us to a a great calling. You have forgiven our sins. You have given us righteousness. You have gifted us and put us together by your sovereign will. You have planned for us to do good works even before the foundation of the world. You made that plan in our enabling us and opening the way for us to to walk in those good works. And so we pray that as we here together, our local family of, of the body of Christ, as we gather together around your word, that you would enable us to to grow together, that we would see the truths that you call us to, and by your strength walk in obedience. We are we confess that we are weak We confess that we are often worldly and selfish in our desires. And Father, we confess that we often spend our strength on the wrong things. Father, we pray that by the power of the ascended Christ and His indwelling Spirit that You would direct our hearts to Your will and strengthen us to spend what You give us for Your glory and for the advancement of the gospel in our lives, in our families, in our local church, in our community, in all the places that you would have us to be, in the relationships that you, you create in our lives. Father, may it all be for your glory, the glory of the Son, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever... Um, slowed down for a few moments and step back and ask yourself, why are there so many instructions about the specific daily activities of life in the body of Christ throughout the whole New Testament? We spend a good deal of time talking about who we are called to be when we gather together as God's people. Why are there so many texts in the New Testament that include a great measure of detail about how things should be when the body of Christ assembles? Why do we take great care, even week after week, to go through all these texts verse by verse and catch the details? Have you ever wondered why we even do this? Why does it all matter so much? Why does it all matter to Christ and to His apostles? Why do the apostles want it to matter to us so much as we read about it? They seem quite earnest about it, right? 
And the answer to those questions I want to remind you of this morning before we get back into this text, it it, it comes from remembering the big picture. God is on a mission of salvation. He is rescuing men and women and children from the punishments of their sin, from the power of sin in their lives, and eventually even the presence of sin and all the effects of sin in their life. God is on that mission. Do you believe that? Remember that big picture. God Himself, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, is right now in the process of restoring a redeemed people to a state of eternal perfection and glory. Just like Jeremy read about this morning in opening the text. God is bringing Christ's people into a sinless, joyful, and eternal fellowship with Himself. That's the finish line. That's home. Are you anticipating that? That's what God is doing in the world. He is giving to Christ and His people a new heaven and a new earth that will never be corrupted. He's bringing to Himself and to His Son, Jesus Christ, all the glory that that He deserves. And from His rescued people, He is bringing that glory as He renews them into His image. And as He brings about a new creation, God is on that mission of salvation today. The kingdom of heaven has been invading the kingdom of earth for thousands of years now since the fall of mankind into sin. Jesus, the King of heaven, came to earth as the God-man, Savior, and preached that all men must repent and turn to Him for salvation because the King was here. His first advent, He came here, and the kingdom of God was at hand, like He said. Jesus, the King of heaven, will come again as the Savior and judge, and He will complete His entire work of redemption and restoration in His people and His new heaven and earth and and will cast into eternal darkness and suffering all those who by their love for sin and hatred for the truth and the light choose the wrath of God over the love of God. That's the big picture, right? You live for that big picture. It's what drives us every day of our lives is the people of Christ. And so now, from that day that that Jesus ascended, remember, disciples met Him on the mountaintop and He ascended before their eyes. From that day to this, since that day, Jesus sits as Lord at the right hand of the throne of heaven. From that day to this, there is one organization that that God has ordained to take up the message of Christ and say after Him, repent, for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Turn to King Jesus as Savior and Lord and be delivered from your sin and be given the eternal joys of life with God. What is that one organization? The church. The New Testament church and all of its local expressions, ours too, Think of it this way. We are an embassy of heaven. And each one of you are ambassadors for Christ. Each one of us, ambassadors for Christ, who must live their lives imploring the world in behalf of Christ the King, be reconciled to God, like 2 Corinthians 5 says. And that's why these texts matter. Because... Think of that. We're the embassy of heaven. We're one of the embassies of... We're an embassy of heaven right here in Delta County. Heaven is invading earth through the message that we proclaim. We're the pillar and the buttress of the truth of heaven, just like Paul talked about in this letter. We hold fast the message of reconciliation, and we hold it high. 
for the world to see and hear. We must live lives that look like the power of the gospel has changed us and is giving and is gaining progress over our sinfulness. And we must proclaim a message that of the pure gospel that has been once for all delivered to the saints through the apostles. And this is why, as we come to this text, the leadership of these embassies of heaven, the local church, is why the leadership must be qualified. Not perfect, but qualified. They must be doctrinally qualified. Elders must be doctrinally qualified. And elders must be qualified in their behavior and skill. Can you, can you make those big connections in your mind? That's why these texts matter. The direction of the many embassies of each, I guess I get, the, the direction of many ambassadors in each embassy of heaven, each local church, will be greatly influenced by those leaders, will they not? The purity of the people of a church is influenced greatly by its elders. The purity of the gospel that a church believes and proclaims is influenced greatly by its elders. You come here every week and you hear me, maybe most of you or many of you, twice a week, and I tell you the same messages over and over again, similar words, and many of you have had your gospel understanding shaped by the Word of God that comes through what I say. That's serious, isn't it? And you take that home and share it with your children and your neighbors. And so if the leadership of this church gets that message wrong, that has a great impact upon your lives. The reputation of the name of Christ and the Father is greatly affected in any community by the message and behavior of any local church and its elders. And so as I think about those connections in my mind, my heart just prays and I say, may the ascended, reigning, interceding Christ send us His power through His Spirit to build and maintain a biblical eldership and consequently a church. A holy eldership. We're, we're on a mission here. We, the Lord has been working in us to accomplish these things and only He can do them. A holy eldership is a work of God. A humble eldership. A wise eldership. Truthful eldership. Bold and loving eldership so that more and more people may be discipled in the Gospel. And for all these reasons, this text this morning is immeasurably important for us. <clears throat> we must learn to follow Christ's instructions to us in this text so that when an elder is found to be sinning, he is properly handled. We shouldn't be so naive to think that there will never come a day when we have to confront an elder who is sinning. Right? As, as difficult as that may be. We have to be ready for that. The name of Christ, the purity of the gospel, the holiness of the church will be affected by that. And so we have to learn this. And not only that, that, but we must learn to follow Christ's instructions in this text so that qualified elders are protected. And all elders and their people will be compelled and divinely empowered to live holy lives unto Christ. And this must be for the purity of the church and the glory of Christ. So may, may Christ grant this to be so for us. The main idea of the text this morning is rebuke a sinning elder according to Christ's exhortations. Let's think through this carefully and follow the design of our head, Jesus Christ. So what are Christ's exhortations for rebuking a sinning elder? Have you ever heard a message on this text? It's not one that's necessarily fun for an elder to speak, right? I'm showing you how to get rid of me. No. If an elder sins, this is what must be done. 
It's very important for us to know. Number one, here's what we need to know. We need to know the exhortations for hearing an accusation. Exhortations for hearing an accusation. Verse 19 through 21 is this section about admitting a charge against an elder. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The first thing I want us to observe about this text is that accusations, letter A, accusations should come from members to qualified leadership. Well, where do I get that? There's some things in this text I think we have to look very carefully at, dig a little deeper than what's on the surface, and I think it will help us because this text can be difficult to work through, to find the, what are the steps that, 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 gives, that Christ gives to us there can be, there's, you'll hear different messages and different interpretations on some things, but I worked very hard on this, and Lord willing, we will be moving in the right direction with this. The words of this verse, verse 19, and the historic setting of this letter seem to bear out this point, that accusations come from members, and when I say members, I mean other elders and any person who's a part of a local body can can bring the, the accusation to a qualified leader of the church, an elder. The reason I say this is because Paul is writing to whom? To Timothy, right? And, and Timothy is, is functioning there as one of the church leadership. And he's exhorting him to do what? He's exhorting him to, to restore a biblical eldership in Ephesus, and so you can understand that as the local body began to realize what Paul had instructed Timothy to do, that Timothy would probably have been, I imagine that he was inundated with many accusations about the different leaders of the local church in Ephesus. This doesn't appear to be a godly, unified, holy church at the present time. So the members and other elders would likely have wanted to do what they could to remove those elders that they didn't like and maybe suggest those that they wanted to be elders. And so Paul is giving Timothy exhortations about hearing or admitting a charge, admitting an accusation against another elder. And so Paul is granting that Timothy right now in Ephesus is one of the qualified leaders or elders of that local church, and that he is to admit or refuse to admit accusations about other elders according to his instructions. And that makes sense to me. I think that as we observe who is bringing the accusations to whom in this verse, that it brings us to at least an example of wisdom that we could follow. And the Apostle Paul, by implication, is affirming that principle. When an elder is observed sinning by others, or the people of a body observe, or, or any local church member, they observe a person that is... When an elder is observed sinning by other elders, or the people of that body, or any local church member, what that person is to do is, if they've witnessed to that, they, that must never become a reason for gossip and slander throughout the body. The pattern that I see here in this text is that Timothy is the one who is admitting or refusing to admit witnesses of a sinning elder. And if we're going to follow that pattern, just what we're observing here by example, we could say that members who have witnessed an elder sinning should bring their testimony to a qualified elder or the body of elders so that, that they can deal with it in exactly the way Paul commands in the rest of this text. Just by observing this, people bring, are bringing their accusations to Timothy, and he then begins to deal with them. So the first step that the members are not... Are, the first step is that members are not to, to make an accusation of a sinning elder a reason for gossip and slander in the body, but instead bring their accusation before a qualified elder or body of elders. And again, that impresses to me the, very, the important point that an elder must be more than one. Do you see? It must be a plurality. 
Because if one elder is sinning, then who do the people go to in order to begin to deal with that issue? They would go to another elder like Timothy here in this text. Now, Paul's instructions build on that principle. People are to bring accusations of of failed leadership to Timothy, but there's a little more. Letter B, accusations are only allowed from what? Two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. Paul says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence or on the basis of two or three witnesses. Just take those words here. Do not admit, just simply to receive. Someone is coming to Timothy and asking him, would you receive this accusation? Would you take this up to take upon oneself? That's what admit means, to take upon oneself, to accept it. And, and it, a charge, right? It's simple accusation of sinning. Paul says, don't do that except on the evidence, really simply on the basis of, notice, witnesses. What does that word mean? It's not hearsay, right? What is that? That is one who is a spectator of something personally. One who has observed something firsthand. And and how many witnesses does Paul require that there be before an accusation is even heard or taken up for investigation by Timothy or other elders? And of course, Paul says here, two or three. So according to the exhortation of this verse, Timothy and every other church leader or elder must only listen to accusations that come to him personally from at least two or three witnesses. In other words, this this is a protection here. Elders are to turn a deaf ear to any accusations against another elder that do not come to them personally by two or three witnesses. Now, what does that exhortation accomplish? Just like we've begun to say, First, it accomplishes the protection of qualified elders. So qualified elders are to be protected by the local church. That's an important part of preserving and maintaining a biblical eldership. They serve the other elder, protected by the local church and and the other elders whom they serve with. If an elder is qualified, here's here's why this is so important. If an elder is qualified, living a Christ-like life and preaching a Christ-honoring gospel then he will most certainly have accusations coming for him. Will he not? Look back through the Scriptures and see that 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 is true. The evil one will want to discredit him, to discourage him. Envious people will want to discredit him. Evil people will want to disqualify him. And that's the reason for such hostility is because the evil one desires to oppose the work of God that God is choosing to do through him through any qualified elder. And therefore, there will be frivolous, slanderous accusations coming his way. But they are to be shut down by the church's obedience to this exhortation. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses being brought to qualified elders or elders. John Calvin said this, referring to this text, and to qualified elders, that there is none more exposed to slander and insults than godly teachers. Jesus experienced this. Paul experienced this. The church history lays this out over many years with many names. So this exhortation to only admit a charge against an elder on the basis of two or three witnesses is a Christ-given protection to be personally taken up by fellow elders and members of a local church. All of the members of a church are called to be loyal to one another, though, as well. This, I think, is a good point to remember. By refusing to slander one another and listen to slander about one another. Instead, there is a legitimate issue of, if there is a legitimate issue of sin, it's to be dealt with just as Christ has commanded. Can you remember the text that Christ has given us and how to deal with sin in the body? 
Matthew 18, right? 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, Titus 3, and this text as well. Now, let's, let's keep going with the process. You have a qualified leader here, Timothy, who is receiving charges. He's only to receive them about a sinful elder from the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, we got that. Now, if two or three members have witnesses, have witnessed an elder sinning, then, they're, then they are to come together to a qualified elder and make their accusation personally, accurately, courageously. Right? That's not an easy thing to do. And with Christ-like love. Now, here's the question that began to come up in my mind, and maybe you're thinking about it as well. How does one witness find another witness, or two, without gossiping or slandering in the body? How do they get together? Now, I'm going to have to make a confession here. That seems to be the most challenging question to answer from this text. I felt satisfied with every other quandary as I was working through this text, but that one, I'm like, how do we get those people together so that they can come and make the accusation properly? And so here's what I would suggest. Here's what I came to as I was wrestling with that. If you by yourself become a witness to an elder sinning, then take sufficient time to pray. And then ask the Lord to bring you together with another witness, but without creating slander, gossip, and division in the body of Christ. Trust God to work that out. And pursue it in your heart. God, we can't let an elder sin go on sinning like this. I'm certain of what I saw. God, help me. Bring together someone else somehow and help me to discern. Pray as you pray. Pray and ask and expect the Lord to provide for you the wisdom that you need to discern how to discover or come together with another witness so that you can be obedient to this text. I think that's the way to go. And trust God to fill in the blanks there for us. Now, once two or three witnesses have their accusation admitted, what happens next? You come, you bring them. Okay, we've heard that before the, the, the qualified elder or the, the, the board, the body of elders, number two. Here's exhortations for rebuking an elder. This is verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Number two, exhortations for rebuking an elder. Letter A, rebuke must follow fair investigation. There's a few things in this text that help me to see that there must be some sort of investigation following the accusations that are brought to the qualified elder or elders. Take the flow of thought from verses 19 and 20 and add to that the principal attitudes of verse 21. And what we have implied here is sufficient elder investigation. He says to do none of this, and we'll talk more about this in a bit, but to do none of this without prejudging, and certainly without partiality. So you have, you have a charge admitted. An accusation is allowed. Verse 20 explains then what to do when the elder is confirmed to be sinning. You rebuke publicly. Rebuke in the presence of all. And, and you must do that without prejudging Without partiality, partiality, or prejudging. Prejudging means don't do this by assuming anything. Don't, don't let your actions get ahead of the evidence. Don't prejudge. You have to be convinced by valid evidence that the accused elder is indeed sinning and that no matter how he feels, about that sinning elder, how the, how the qualified elder feels about the sinning elder, the truth, is to, the truth is to rule the decision. So there must be sufficient investigation for the truth to be discovered. No prejudging, gather the information, and certainly do nothing from partiality without any 
slanting favor for one person or another, but to be, but to be just. So once the truth is discovered, then let her be, rebuke must be made if the elder is sinning. Rebuke must be made. Rebuke them. In the ESV, the phrase reads, as for those who persist in sin. The original language is simply those who are sinning. I'm not sure why they added this extra, those who persisted sin. It almost it takes, seems to take it a little bit farther than what, what the original word there does. So, the sinning is simply a present active participle, if you like grammar. It's a present active participle. The ones who are sinning. That's, that's all it is. The ones who are sinning. The elders who are sinning. So how does that form of verb, that form of verb, help us to know how to rebuke? Because it is very important. A present active participle. The ones who are sinning. Are we supposed to publicly rebuke an elder if he was observed doing a sin on one occasion? Like, say, speaking harshly to one of his kids on a particular Sunday three weeks ago or something like that. Well, he did that once. Let's, he, boy, you've got to bring him up here, you know, and just, he's done, you know. I don't think that's what this text is talking about. The verb form, present active participle, the ones who are sinning, clearly commands us to rebuke elders who are practicing sin. And I think that's why they use the word persist. The ones who are practicing sin. The ones who are... Uh, there's, a, there's a pattern of sin developed. They have a habit of sin. The ones who are sinning. There's a habit, a pattern a practice. But there's another principle that we must understand with this as well. We rebuke an elder for a pattern of sinning and or for sinning in such a way that clearly violates the qualifications that Paul gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. I think that's going to be helpful for us. Taking the context into consideration. Is this pattern of sinning a violation of 1 Timothy 3. Will it, it, will, it, will, it, will it destroy his qualification? So before you accuse an elder, or before we rebuke an elder, the sinning that he, is to be, that he is being accused of and rebuked for must be clearly established as either a practice of sinning or a clear violation of the qualifications. Those two principles will keep the members of a local body on the right track when preparing to accuse or rebuke an elder. For example, let me see, you can see how this would work two different ways. This is important for us to consider these examples as well. For example, if, if, an, elder, if an elder shows a one-time issue of, of sinful anger, it wouldn't necessarily be a disqualification, Right? But what if his life begins to show a pattern of anger? That could then disqualify him, right? Because he's not to be a brawler. He's not to be someone who gets into fights, right? But on the other hand, not every sin that has become a pattern, not every sin needs to become a pattern before he is disqualified. He could be unfaithful to his wife one time, right? And that would still disqualify him. So I think we need to keep both of those in mind as we consider an elder. First, will this disqualify him? Even the one time of sin? But, okay, maybe this thing that doesn't seem quite as serious has become a life pattern, right? He is sinning, right? The one who is sinning, persisting in sin. That could disqualify him as well. So, if all of the accusations and investigations reveal that the elder is practicing sin and or the qualifications are then clearly violated, what must happen? He must be rebuked. And that word simply means his, he must be shown his fault. He must be convicted of that sin. Must, the sin must be brought to light. He must be admonished and chastened. All, the, all of those shades can be a part of what it means to rebuke, to show fault, to convict, to bring the sin to light, to admonish, and to chasten. 
So then letter C, notice, this isn't just any rebuke. The rebuke must be public and disciplinary. Like it says, rebuke them in the presence of all. And the effect makes that even stronger, so that the rest may stand in fear. The questions that probably come to your mind immediately are who are who is referred to by the all and the rest? Because some people might think, well, just in the presence of the other elders, so that the rest of the elders may stand in fear. Others would say, the presence of the entire church, so that not only the elders, but the entire church may stand in fear. What do we have to go on to help us decide who's included in the all and the rest? Well, let's think about this. I believe that this is referring to all of the people of the church. Because, first of all, in Matthew 18, where Christ gives very clear instructions for discipline in the church, when the process of church discipline goes beyond the accusation of two or three witnesses, it says in verse 17 to tell it to whom? Tell it to the church. So if that is what is done for members who aren't elders, there's even a greater need to do that for those who are elders in sin. And secondly, because the sinning elder no longer qualifies then to be an elder, his rebuke must be accompanied with a dismissal from the office of an elder. That must be included in the public rebuke, and therefore the people of the church must have clarity about why the elder whom they loved and followed is no longer an elder. That's not something to, to keep hush-hush. Right? No longer preaching the Word to us, sons? No longer teaching? No longer shepherding people? Why? Right? That, that's something that needs to be brought clear in, in the rebuke, right? The, the sin needs to be revealed. That kind of clarity is very important for maintaining the unity of a local church and preventing the spread of, of lies and slander about the situation. This process is very important for maintaining the biblical qualifications of an eldership and the purity of a local church. Elders who do not qualify as elders because they have sinned in such a way that disqualifies them or because their sin has become a pattern of behavior and therefore disqualifies them, must be dismissed from that office of elder. That is God's will for His church. And that rebuke must happen publicly. And Paul gives an additional reason why. Notice what it says there. The, the rebuke must be public because it will have a purifying effect on the other elders, but also the rest of the church, so that the rest there may stand in fear. Publicly rebuking a sinning elder helps the other elders and the people of God to have a holy awe and reverence for the discipline of our Father upon a disobedient believer's life and a holy awe and reverence for the calling to which God has called His elders and His church. Doesn't that make sense? This is a serious thing. Being an elder and being a member of the body of Christ is no frivolous calling. I mean, think about it. When a CEO or a CFO or whatever you want to call it in a company is found to have been embezzling, do they do nothing? Do they just keep it quiet and just keep the guy there? No, they remove him. How much more we who are ambassadors for Christ and the message of salvation and eternal life, how much more we who are at embassy of heaven? Do you see? This is that serious. We proclaim the name and the gospel of Christ in the world by our lives and our words. Therefore, our lives and words must reflect the holiness of Christ and be, we must be changing. The purifying power of grace must be seen. 
You think, well, what about that elder and his family? Do they just get kicked to the curb then? And no, I, I don't think so. This text doesn't address this directly, but the spirit of the texts that deal with church discipline throughout the New Testament do. Letter D, rebuke should be followed by discipleship. This isn't, like I said, this isn't directly in the text, but I think we can glean this from the rest of the New Testament. Now, not every rebuked elder will respond well to the rebuke, as you could imagine, right? You can't force this. This would be the ideal. Some will simply leave and try to find a position elsewhere. Others will sadly, grievously continue in their sin and destroy their lives. But Lord willing, many will humbly confess their sin, resign their office, make right their broken relationships, stay in the spiritual care of their church family who knows them and loves them, the other elders, right, who know them and love them, and receive the discipleship that they need so that they can grow beyond the entanglement in that pattern of sin for which they were rebuked. Wouldn't that be ideal? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to see that man then restored with his family in the body of Christ? And so I believe that the church needs to be ready and willing to do that following the rebuke of a sinning elder. Now finally this morning... Number three, exhortations for maintaining these rules. You can see the progress. Two or three witnesses come to a qualified elder or elders, as they did to Timothy here in this text, and bring an accusation. The men who receive the accusation do an investigation without prejudging and, from not, and not from partiality. And if they found that elder to be, in, to be sinning, just like verse 20 says, they rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, Paul gives exhortations for maintaining these rules. Here's how serious Paul is that the body of Christ follow through with this text. Verse 21, In the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. How many times do you hear the Apostle Paul throughout the epistles that he wrote to the church or the pastors of the churches, how often do you hear him appealing to the presence of God, the presence of Christ, and the presence of the elect angels to do what he says? Not very often. That, that creates a whole lot of pressure right here, doesn't it? That really heightens our understanding of the importance of this text, doesn't it? Wow. Paul says, I charge you to keep these rules. I charge you. Even that phrase, right? I charge you to keep these rules. That's the center of this verse. Even that phrase, he uses that with Timothy, Timothy when he's getting down to the point and demanding a sober and solemn commitment from Timothy to fulfill what he has been commanded to do. This is a sober and solemn commitment. Each one of us must own this solemn and sober commitment in our local church. And Paul calls Timothy, church leaders and the church, to this sober and solemn commitment, solemn commitment by impressing upon them two things here that are really important. Letter A, a sobering audience is watching us. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, a sobering audience is watching. Keep these rules because you are living out life in the body of Christ in the presence of God. Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Let's look at each one of those for just a few moments. God, God the Father. We, we are living these principles out in the presence of God the Father, the living God who created all things who sustains the life of all things, 
and to whom every human being is personally responsible because He is the King and Judge of all. And that King and Judge is everywhere present, all-knowing, and all-powerful. And with matters like rebuking a sinning elder, we can so easily be swayed by the wrong audience, can't we? The wrong audience. By the audience of people. We can be swayed away from these, like Paul calls them, rules. By the audience of of a sinning elder himself and his family. By the audience of a local community. I, I remember... In the past, when we have exercised church discipline here in our body, that 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 was brought into the equation at some point by someone. What will the people of our community think about us doing this? That's the wrong question. What's the right question? What will God think? What will Christ Jesus think? This This is the audience that we must keep in mind. Instead of being captivated by the audience of earth, let us be totally captivated by the audience of heaven, God, in these things. That's helpful for us. And God's audience is really double-edged, isn't it? Because it causes us to tremble on one hand, because He who is righteous and just and holy knows all and sees all things and calls us to be holy as He is holy, but on the other hand, we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, aren't we? As His children. And we can rest in Him who is watching us, like a father looking over our shoulder, knowing that He who is all-powerful and all-knowing and in Him who has said to us that He will never leave us nor forsake us, that He will be with us in these in these proceedings. And He will strengthen us. Keep these rules because we live them out in the presence of God, but also of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. The Son of God who became the humble God-man for our salvation and will return in glory as a conquering King. He too is watching. 1 Timothy 3.16 Listen. Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment in the presence of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession to Pontius Pilate before his crucifixion. That's that's another time where, where Paul calls Timothy to remember that Christ Jesus is watching. That Christ Jesus who stood before the crowd, the masses who were hollering for his crucifixion, Pontius Pilate demanding he speak and Jesus gave a good confession. Very interesting. We'll bring that back to play in just a moment. But Paul calls Timothy, charges Timothy in the presence of Christ Jesus. Also in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, he charges Timothy there to preach the word in the presence of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and his appearing, at His appearing and His kingdom. So let's apply those two verses to this situation as well because Paul is calling Timothy to follow these in the presence of Christ Jesus. So when Paul calls Timothy to keep these rules of rebuking a sinning elder in the presence of Christ Jesus, he is reminding Timothy and all the elders and the church that the one who is watching us obey these commands is the one who knows what it is like to do hard things in a public setting, but who experienced the strength of the Holy Spirit of God to do hard things perfectly. Doesn't that make sense? It's Jesus who's watching. He gave that confession at His own crucifixion and didn't compromise the truth. And Christ will aid the people of His church as they do these kinds of hard things publicly that He calls them to do. And in our weakness, He will aid us when we struggle because He is our sympathetic Savior and Helper who did all things well. But then also, 
Remember also that He is the one who will come and set all things to right because He will judge the living and the dead when He appears and brings His eternal kingdom. Again, we would be wise to trust His grace and submit ourselves to, his, to, to our King rather than give over to the pressures of people. So we keep these rules and we live them out in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, but then finally there, the presence of the elect angels. What comes to your mind there? Why does Paul say elect angels? Paul adds this additional audience because, again, it adds another layer of sobering accountability to our obedience. The elect angels are those who did not fall, right, with with Satan and a third of the host of heaven. These were those who were chosen for eternal perfection. But these angels are those who accompany Christ Jesus when He returns to reward His obedient people and recompense those who have rebelled against Him. I think that's the main issue here. Right? Matthew 13, 37-43, listen to this. He answered, Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Or 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That brings a great deal of accountability, doesn't it? May we prove ourselves to be recipients of the grace of Christ and show that we will be, we will be gathered to the Father by His grace and by how we show show who we are, by how we follow these commands of the Apostle Paul. But also then, according to Hebrews 1.14, that verse says that the elect angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Even then, we may be given help by their work. So God, Christ, angels provide great and sobering accountability for us to keep these rules. But With that sobering accountability, they provide strong encouragement and strength of grace to obey. When we consider this audience, the audience of men begins to fade away and become less important, doesn't it? Think about that even when you have to share the gospel with someone. The audience of men or the audience of heaven. So Paul not only impresses upon Timothy and us, a sobering audience is watching, but then finally, let it be, a solemn attitude is required. We looked at these words a little bit earlier, but let me just more clearly define them for you. Keep these without prejudging, and certainly not from partiality. Prejudging, not prejudging. What does that mean? Solemn attitudes here required. It means don't go into this uninformed. Do not be ignorant of the facts. Make sure that you don't act out of prejudice or preconceived judgment or a predetermined guilt or innocence. Do the work by the grace of God to know the truth. And God enables us to obey with this attitude. Doing nothing from partiality. To be impartial means don't, don't 
be inclined toward an elder or a member. Don't favor some people over others in a situation like this. To do it out of justice. Again, as I think about those words, that's what Paul calls us to, and may God enable us to obey with these attitudes. In closing this morning, again, I ask us, who is sufficient for these things? Right? The, I look at this and I think, wow, this, this is serious stuff. This takes a great deal of, of spiritual ability. Christ is our sufficiency. Brothers and sisters, sisters, let us never depend upon our own minds or our own bodies or abilities to accomplish things like this. Let's depend upon the ascended, reigning, interceding Christ alone. Let's be praying. If, if the Lord ever calls us to, to do this process, may we be constant in prayer, constantly dependent upon the strength of Christ. Rebuke a sinning elder according to Christ's exhortations. And then, dear friend, I don't know what's going on in your heart today or someone maybe even listening online, but if you do not know that you're a child of God today, you don't know that your sins are forgiven, that, that you have a home in heaven with Christ, that you're right with God, if you don't know that, I want to in a fresh way this morning, urge you to carefully consider, again, those in whose presence we live. God, Christ Jesus, the elect angels. I guarantee you that you will have deep regret at the return of Christ if you do not turn away from your rebellion against God now. If you do not turn away from trying to please God by what you think you can do to impress Him. You will have deep regret on that coming of Christ when, if you do not completely trust in what He did in His life and His death and resurrection to save you from the, the penalty of your sin and the power of sin in your life. Turn to Him today. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Paul writes, he says, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul urges his readers, don't resist the grace of God. Receive it. When Christ returns, the only safe place from God's just wrath will be in Christ. That's the only safe place. In Christ. So hide in Christ's righteousness, not your own. Hide in the death of Christ. Only that can atone for your sin. Hide in Christ's resurrection. Only that will bring you up out of the grave and give you life that is forever. If you rest in the power of Christ, you'll be safe then when Christ returns. That's God's promise to you. And more than that, you will rejoice in the love of God forever. The pleasures of sin for the shortest season of life, cannot even be compared with the pleasures of heaven that last forever in Christ. Let's stand together and we'll pray this morning. Father, we ask you to impress these truths upon our hearts. Help us to remember them, to be thinking through this, these texts together be praying over them. Spirit of God, seal them to us. And then, if you ordain that we need to exercise these things, enable us, remind us of what is in this text. And may we not fear men, but fear God to be in awe of you and to trust in your love and righteousness and power at work in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would do your great work in our local church. Keep building us, Father, please, by the power of the risen Christ. Keep bringing to us gifted people, 
keep revealing to us the gifts that you have given to us. Put us together. Let the joints and ligaments be supplied. Let each part be working properly so that we can build one another up in love. And by your grace, we can be more like Jesus, the King of heaven who invaded the kingdom of earth and called men to repentance and faith. Father, let us be an an embassy of heaven. Let us be ambassadors for Christ in the place of Christ here. Help us to see clearly how all of these pieces work together so that we can be who you've called us to be, that we can grow up in the truth as we speak the truth in love to one another. Enable us for these things, Father. And may it be for your glory. And Father, we will be, by your grace, we will be so glad when your Son returns and we will be home and we will be at rest We will know joy like we've never known it before. And we will be glad and grateful that we have been chosen by you and enabled to walk in your ways. Father, let us not fear men. Let us be in awe of you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.